Welcome to season nine of Interdisciplinary, where we're reaching the tail end of discussing information and research, except if you want to discuss it more, please come to the HeoWell community, where the discussions continue on forever and perhaps even ad nauseum, depending on how you're feeling that day. Um, That's about right. <laughs> this season is in support of our upcoming symposia, which you won't hear me plug anymore in a bit. So you better get your tickets now before you forget. It's called Within Reach, the quest for information and research. Early bird pricing available now until the beginning of January, which is coming up really soon. And I don't really want to think about that, but it is coming up soon. Uh, this season of Interdisciplinary is brought to you by the glorious people at ABMP. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Today I have with me Cal Cates, who thankfully brought a pun because I totally forgot. I sure did. It's a it's an oldie but a baddie. I hope you guys are ready. Oof. What do you call a detective who uh, discovers evidence totally by accident? Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got I've got one for you. All yes. Right. You know that guy Albert Einstein was brilliant. But his brother, Frank, oh, he was a monster. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's that is good. good. Um, that is the voice of Mr. Harry Pickens, who is joining us today as a guest. How are you, Harry? I am present and accounted for. How are you? I am happy you're here. Indeed. Uh, you may remember Mr. Pickens from last season, where we sort of talked about code switching and talked about many things beside code switching. I imagine this conversation will be similar, and I'm all about it. So as we are discussing information and research, uh, Harry, I'd like you to tell us about your job. My job? Your job. I'm self-employed. <clears throat> I work for myself. I train therapists and counselors and coaches in trauma re release techniques. That's primarily what I do. Mostly online, almost exclusively online this since COVID began. So I help people rewire their brains for less stress and more joy and help people release the pain of their past. So that's it. That's, that's it, it, he says. That's casually. it. Right. That's all. I'm just healing the planet. You know, it's one, cool. one, one heart at a time, you know. Only way to do it. So, oh, go ahead, Corey, you have questions. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, I, obviously this leads very well into what we're talking about this season because I suspect um, and hope, but I suspect mostly because knowing you, Harry, that you use information and research to um, create your teaching materials and to engage with the people that you work with. And 
we've been talking with people this season about like, what is information and, and what does it mean to you? And how do you decide if it's useful and how do you find it? And so anything along those lines, um, we would love to know about. That's really interesting because um, I, I do use information and research in the work that I do. And at the same time, most of the courses that I teach right now are based on a well-established body of knowledge, some of which I've created. So there's, there's, there's not a lot of new research that goes into teaching the basic levels of the work. I think the more interesting thing for me around this conversation might be related to our prior conversation on code switching in healthcare because I am in my sixth month of post COVID long COVID recovery. And part of my, the, mo the most interesting thing about my personal journey in the last six months has been how do I find answers that when the traditional roots for finding answers are unavailable, obscure, difficult, or filled with barriers. Is that of interest to you? Why, yes, yes. it is. Yes, indeed. Okay, because, you know, I mean, I, I, could, I could talk about the research that leads to the, the, the tools that I use to teach my clients and everything, but that's pretty standard. You know, you yeah, we to, don't care about that. We want to hear about the challenges you just yeah, talked yeah. about. You, you, you go to PubMed, you go to the library, you, you know, et cetera. But what's most interesting for me is after I got COVID in June and COVID itself is not such a big deal, four or five days. Um, but after it, the asthma that I hadn't had for 30 years came back. I developed grueling insomnia. Uh, the month of September, I slept an average of one and a half to two hours a night the entire month. Ugh. As a result of the insomnia, you know, all sorts of things start to cascade, you know, because you can't re, re, reset your brain, your body, your nervous system, your organs, et cetera. And so everything begins to kind of crash. And so I found myself in a position of being physically profoundly challenged on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, breath-by-breath basis, quite literally, and thinking, okay, what do I do? Where do I go? Where do I start? Clearly, the last place to start, no offense meant, was sort of with the traditional medical world, you know, which didn't really know a lot, and whose solution is, okay, let's give you a drug or something. And so I found myself cascading. I'd gone through this journey when I, when I, was, in, I was in my 40s, because I had a traumatic brain injury, and I'm six foot nine, hit my head on the top of doors and chandeliers and other sorts of things. So I had post-concussive trauma. Lived in a house that had toxic mold. So I had mold poisoning and other kinds of uh, HPA axis issues. So chronic fatigue. At one point, the combination of the um, traumatic brain injury and the fatigue and the mold poisoning, I play the piano, Many you, you might know that I'm, professional, I'm a professional musician. In the eighties and nineties, I toured internationally. Got to the point where I remember in August 1999, I sat down at the piano and it took me 10 minutes to find a C major chord. It took me 10 minutes to find three notes. And I, I, I thought, oh my God, this may never change. I might never get better. This might be the rest of my life. And it took me nine years to get better. Went to 17 doctors, 16 told me they couldn't help me. I remember documenting like 34 or 35 different complementary alternative and as well as medical practice, everything from IV vitamins to hyperbaric oxygen to Qigong 
to um, all sorts of things. And so I had that, that, that experience to draw upon with COVID. So I started Google searching. I started looking in my, my library of books and materials to look at what else might be there. And I started experimenting, you know, and now six months later, probably 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 different things tried. You know, I, I, know, I know a lot about insomnia. I know about, you know, the po relationship between post-nasal nasal drip and sleep apnea between, I know about uh, early morning hypoglycemia. I know about all sorts of things related to sleep that I never imagined before, but I, I, I'd try something and it wouldn't work. So I'd find something else, you know? So my process of healing, and I will say now, the last three or four days, I feel the closest to post-COVID health that I've felt in six months. And it's been a daily persistent journey through research, information, dilution, application, experimentation. You know, you, you become N of one, you know, you become your own data set because you need to explore those things. So I'll stop there. Wow. Well, that was too long a road. I am glad that you are feeling like you're headed back in the right direction. And I feel like this is a, in a, in a way, I mean, we were talking in another group in the Heal Well community this morning about um, sort of how you, how you get curious and stay curious and what that road is like. And, you know, certainly when your own health is at stake, the curiosity is almost inborn. Like you're like, I need to fix this. But how do we bring that kind of like dogged curiosity to when there is so much information sort of readily available, you know, um, you can just Google insomnia and you'll get an article. And if you're not the person suffering from insomnia, you go, oh, it's this. And then you feel like you're done. And yeah, that's no good. <laughs> well, that, that's really interesting because I think curiosity is really, really it might be my superpower along with, with all, along with persistence because the curiosity, I mean, I, I learned this, I took care of my mom, as you know, for eight years and, and she, was, she had dementia, she had lots of issues, she was dying, she was frail or whatever. And I remember having to be a ninja about research about, you know, medical contraindications and everything with her medications and everything. And I had to be a really assertive advocate for her. So I think I've had, I've had life experiences that have led me to this place of being proactively curious and relentless. And interestingly, I was, you know, Rebecca and I got married October 13th. One week later, that following Thursday, I was in the ER all day because I woke up that morning and I had a heart arrhythmia that scared me. I thought I was having a heart attack, went to the ER and spent the day there. They did blood tests and everything. I hadn't had a heart attack, whatever. But by the end of the day, that was an initiatory experience for me. Because by the end of the day, I had this insight. You know what? Nobody outside of me is going to figure this out all by themselves. And I need to be the CEO of my own, my own health. And I need to look at everybody, whether it's medical or acupuncture, or whatever, psychological, whatever, as advisors on my team. But I am the one who has to orchestrate. Because I realized I'd fallen into this mindset that lives in our culture, our culture reeks with it, which is the expert, you know, um, 
the, the, the experts on the pedestal, you know, and they know everything and you blindly follow what they do. And sometimes that can be really valuable. You know, I don't, I, if, if, if I'm, you know, if I'm on a plane, I want an expert driving, the, I want an expert riding the plane. I don't, I don't want to be responsible for driving the plane. But in the medical area, what I've discovered through my own embodied experience, as well as the racial dynamics we talked about before and the gaslighting, I discovered that I have to, and I got this lesson again on October 20th, I have to take charge. I have to be the one listening, because I had a conversation with the, the, the doctor of the ER, and it was astonishing. He's telling me about atrial fibrillation and atrial pops, which I've had before, I have both of those. And I know it because I've been down that road for 20 years, right? And the doctor insisted that I didn't know what I was talking about, that I didn't know my own body, I didn't know my heart, and that I was wrong. And it was interesting to be in that situation of profound vulnerability in the emergency room and have a doctor gaslight you. And so I'm saying all these things, I'm talking way too long, but I'm saying all these things to say that I found that if I did not become radically proactively curious about everything that has to do with my physical body, I would be putting my hands in the, I putting my, my body and my well-being and my health in the hands of other people who might be well-intentioned, but ignorant. So that's just my philosophy. You know, I, this is my body, my lungs, my heart, my nervous system, whatever. And I have to be curious because curiosity is my lifeline. I can't afford not to be curious. You were talking about all of these um, interventions and possible solutions and hopeful solutions that you've been through in the past six months. And I'm curious if you can describe to people how you knew when to stop something and when to start something else. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I, I am, one of the things also that I teach and I teach my students I, I, is a course called Intuitive Intimacy, which is about really getting in touch with your own inner wisdom. And so I listen to my own inner wisdom and I will ask repeatedly. And very often what I'll get, I mean, I remember one morning I woke up at like, it was this night of virtual sleeplessness. And I had this intuition to look up insomnia, blood sugar. Never thought about it, never heard of it before. As I looked up insomnia, blood sugar, and I started seeing that there's such a thing as that, that low blood sugar can cause that, that led me down a whole rabbit hole of other information. Um, I forget what, something happened recently, the last month or so in looking up. Oh, well, looking up, um, what was it? Cardiac arrhythmia, and I forget the other piece. Um, I'm not answering your question very well. Um, it's a difficult question to answer. Well, it's listening to one's own intuition and weighing that against the information of those who have expertise and creating this kind of feedback loop between those two, I would say. So for example, I talked to a sleep doctor who was the author of a book and I, I was able to get a telemedicine you know, session with him. And he gave me a whole list of really things, powerful things to look at, including looking at non-allergic rhinitis um, and clearing out the nasal passages and um, sleep apnea and um, esophageal issues and breathing and all these other things. And then I went from him 
to a consultation with a medical intuitive. And I went with medical intuitive who I trust, who I've worked with, who's, who's, who's written books on medical intuition. And I went down the list he gave me, step by step by step. I said, what do you think of this, 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 this? What do you see happening in my body? What's your sense? And I took those two pieces of information and went to whatever was next, you know, and started implementing and um, getting assessments. So I got a sleep apnea test and I got other assessments and so forth. So it's really kind of, you, you get this piece of information and you digest it, you metabolize it, you ask your inner wisdom what's next and you you work with that way i mean you become your own you become your own experiment but you're also weigh, weighing your intuition with logic i mean if my intuition says okay well just like go outside and eat you know eat three three leaves from the maple tree and you know whatever at four o'clock in the morning i'm not going to do that i'm going to i'm going to weigh that with um with logic is that helping? Yes, one of the um, people that we talked to, um, I believe last week, Dr. Matt Hudson, um, who's a clinical researcher, and we sort of talked about process. And um, he was worried about not coming off as really knowing what he was talking about and really having a solid piece of information to deliver because sort of the world he runs in um, expects all of the information in 10 minutes and then like they have busier things to do. So you better just freaking get it out. And here we go. Um, and we also talked about the idea that at Heal Well, we would actually much rather see your process than necessarily see the end result. We can see the end result anytime, but watching how people process and that they do it differently and that it's a huge trial and error thing, I think helps hopefully our listeners to understand that all of the times that they tried and failed are really important and are totally the point. Oh my and God, failure is not bad. Yeah, failure is feedback. That's all it is. Failure is information that you get that helps you change your course. I mean, I could go back through my um, browser history over the next six months. <laughs> and I would probably, you would probably find a thousand websites on all different kinds of issues related to health that I've consulted over this period of time, you know? Well, and I feel like the, you know, not to, at the risk of bright siding it, like even failure, it just means what you expected didn't happen. Yeah, You know, exactly. it's like, <laughs> it doesn't actually, like failure, we have this idea that like, oh, that's it. And it's like, like you said, it is just feedback, but we, we don't even know that we're expecting an outcome. And if the outcome is different, we couch that as failure. And I, and I think it does, it, it sort of dampens our curiosity and makes us question our intuition and that, you know, intuition really is about being willing to see what's next and to be like, oh, so I went that way. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't what I expected. And your intuition is just leading you toward information, I feel like, and being willing to receive that information, even when it doesn't confirm what you suspected, is that's the the art of it, I guess. Yeah, and I, I really, really appreciate that. It, it doesn't confirm you what you expected. So recently, I made, a, I made an adjustment in my supplementation, which I think might be part of the key of my being able to sleep better. I've been taking tryptophan, L-tryptophan at night, just one uh, 500 milligrams to, to a gram. And I had this hunch out of the blue, completely out of the blue about a week ago, look up tryptophan dosage um, 
in general, you know, for sleep, for depression, for serotonin syndrome, for whatever. And I, what, I, I looked it up in a different way because before I'd only look at it for sleep, for sleep um, latency specifically. And when I looked up uses of tryptophan applications for other conditions, I was surprised that the recommendations for dosage were higher. And I thought, this is interesting. I don't know what the connection is, but I'm gonna experiment with taking the tryptophan during the day instead of just at night. And I don't know exactly what happened, but that helped something shift in my system. And I don't know yet if that has to do with circadian rhythms. I don't know if it has to do with serotonin, you know, a precursor or whatever. But that was a hunch that came completely out of the blue. I, re I researched it, I followed it, and it's leading to a positive outcome. So I would say for me, it's like there's the question. When I teach, I call this the creative focus question. Like there's the question that you ask, how may I, in my case, heal my body? How, how may I sleep well through the night, whatever? And you keep that question, it's like, you keep it open in your consciousness. It's always working in the back of your awareness. And when, once you open the question, if you, if, you, if you stay in a listening attitude, a listening mindset, then insights will start to bubble up that seem random, but aren't necessarily random. You know? And so I'll get an insight and then the intuitive insight will lead to research information gathering. It might be a book. It might be like, I have, I have some books on my, on my shelf for all sorts of different conditions and everything. Um, and it might say, okay, the insight might be, okay, go to this book and just go to the chapter on whatever, blood sugar or blood pressure or whatever. And look that up. Or it might be a Google, Google search. And then you corroborate that logical information with your intuition and turn that into an experiment. And then you do the experiment and notice the results of the experiment and then the cycle continues. Now, I'd say that's my process. Creative focus question, intuition, research, ex data collection, experiment, evaluation, and then that's the loop. And the duration of that loop could be anywhere from 10 minutes to a day or two, from the question to the intuition, to the information, to the, the experimentation. Well, and I wonder, I mean, I feel like because you think about thinking, um, even when you're not on a podcast where we're talking about it, you know, <laughs> I, I wonder where the interruption is for people, you know, that, that to really come to something that you might consider useful, there's sort of an arc that you have to complete. Um, and I think there are so many places within the steps you just talked about where people get derailed, get deflated, get confused, and then just start to in, start to see themselves as people who are bad at deciphering information or finding useful information. Yeah, I, I would say one of the greatest um, barriers to that is the idea that mood and action need to be correlated. In other words, I need to feel a certain way in order to do a certain thing. What I experienced in these last six months, and also in my 40s when I had the, the, the TBI or whatever, is that, and I also experienced it as a creative process. And um, 
I know Rebecca can speak to this because of her writing, and I'm sure you all, whoever, whatever, whatever your creative process is. If you let mood to if you let mood dictate action, then you sabotage yourself. So I'm composing a piece of music, or I'm writing a, a, a blog post, or whatever. And if I if I say, well, I'm not in the mood for writing today, or I don't feel good, or whatever, and I don't write, then I've sabotaged an opportunity. And I, because I noticed over time with composing and with writing, I'd be in the, I'd be in the greatest mood. I feel like, like the source, the God, the infinite universe was speaking through me onto the page, right? And the next day I'd look at it, it was awful. It sucked. On the other hand, <laughs> else, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm writing, you know, and I was like, I don't even feel like doing this. I don't know why I'm actually sitting at the freaking computer. I'm tired. And I checked that out a couple of days later and it was good, right? So I realized there was no correlation between the quality of the product and my mood in the moment. That transfers, I think, to everything. So suppose you have a, a problem or a question or whatever. If you feel happy, if you feel sad, if you feel angry, if you feel glad, doesn't really freaking matter. What matters is in that moment, are you following the arc? You know? And I think so many of us get stuck in beliefs and blocks and barriers and everything. I think, I think that's, that's why that kind of work's important to clear all that stuff. But I mean, if like in the last six months, if I had waited until I felt good to do any research, man, I wouldn't have done anything. Because I went through weeks where I felt like crap all day long, every day, mm. you know? And also when I, when I had the TBI, you know, I, I went through months where I felt craply all day long, every day. But something in me would, you know, I feel like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a story. I learned, my, my dad was um, alcoholic and his mother died in childbirth. So he never had, a, he never knew a mother's love and he had pretty intense alcoholism and also depression. And I found that for a while I was, you know, we can epigenetically inherit these emotional energetic traits. And before I learned how to release that, I had a tendency towards that kind of really deep, dark, worse than suicide depression. It's like, I'm too depressed to even bother killing myself, right? And so I remember having a day like that. I was in San Francisco for a conference and I woke up in the morning. It's like, oh my God, this dark cloud of gray muck is just completely over me. I was probably in my twenties or early thirties at the time. And I read this book. The book was called Mental Health Through Will Training. And it was written in the fifties. And it was basically talking about these experiments that were done uh, with people who had various kinds of, what were categorized at the time, mental emotional illnesses. And what they would do is they would train, train their choice capacity by having them make lists of micro tasks. Like, okay, it's in the morning. You just woke up and you feel like crap. So I, I, I literally made a list. Okay, what do I need to do? Sit up, stand up, walk to bathroom, pee, flush toilet, go back to bed. I made a list of six items. <laughs> and as, as I did each one, I checked it off, right? And so that was a really powerful lesson in taking action in the face of feeling bad. And I, I think learning how to take, take the action that serves your long-term goal, my long-term goal is to be healthy. My interim goal is to find out 
what, what I need to do today to support that health. I think learning how to take the action that serves your long-term goal in spite of the feeling of the moment, I think that's the, that's, that's, that's the, the superpower. I think if people could, if people could, no, and that also requires the presupposition that there's a solution there's out there somewhere. I don't know where it is. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but I'm not stopping until I find it. I think there's also something to be said. You talked about working, whether or not you feel happy or inspired or whatever. Yeah. Um, even when you feel terrible, you still do the work. I think people sort of get this picture that um, people who write great things, whether it's music or prose or whatever are, you know, they found that place, that place where they work really well. And that's what they do every day is they work really well in that place. And you might forget that mood not only has an effect on your work that, as you said, could be really good, surprisingly, even though you felt terrible, um, but I think it also affects your thought process and right. We have lots of thoughts that we don't keep track of. Your brain thinks about things all the time and doesn't tell you, it just makes the thoughts and then they go away. And sometimes it makes thoughts and tell you and they're terrible and wrong. Um, I call it the, the random thought processing. Um, but those random thoughts and that mood that you're in that is kind of sucky means different thoughts and different ideas and different links. So the idea that you need to be happy all of the time, which is a concept that we hate at Heal Well anyway, uh, is also, it's detrimental to your to process in the first place, to, to finding the thing you're going to find. Maybe you can't find it when you're feeling hunky-dory. Yeah, and this is not to disparage the importance of, 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 of well-being and joy. And not all. at all. But it, it also speaks to the necessity of being able to focus, think, and act in a way that is not dependent on the concept. I remember um, reading a book um, years and years ago, and the author's main premise um, was that emotions are like the weather. They're constantly changing. But awareness is like the sky. So whichever one you identify with will determine your state of being. So if I'm, if I'm, if I'm, if like today it's cloudy, yesterday, it was, or actually a couple of hours ago it was sunny, you know, and now it's cloudy and it, it might rain or whatever. If I identify with the constantly changing weather of my emotional state in the moment, then I am always a victim of that emotional state. And it's going to pull me wherever it takes me. But if I can identify with the awareness, this is what meditative practice is about. If I can identify with the awareness and my observing of that state of being, then I can take action based on my objectives, not based on whatever mood happens to land in that moment. Are you all still there? We're still here. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I am just considering this. I mean, I feel like as a as a quasi Buddhist, I this idea that you know your your mind is the sky and your thoughts are the weather makes complete sense. And 
um, I, I think that it is another place where we're not aware of our willingness to believe our victimhood, I guess. And like, and how, how typical it is and how easy it is to believe that, well, if I didn't get a flat tire, I could have blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, if I didn't feel crappy when I woke up, I might have, and that like, we can always externalize. Um, and, and, and what's the balance? I feel like this is the real question is, so what's the balance between, um, just toughing it out and like, you know, no, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to listen to, you know, my body feeling bad today and I'm going to whatever. And knowing that there's wisdom in, in focusing on like you, like those micro tasks and being like, okay, so what is ahead of me in this moment? And, and how do I keep my eye on the, the big ball of light or whatever it is that you imagine as like your, I want to be healthy. I want to be whatever the thing is that makes you get up every day. How do you balance that? That's a really, really good point because everything I'm saying is not at all negating the fact that there is the need in every moment to listen to your body and to give your body what it needs and to feed your body and hydrate your body and nourish your body and take care of your body. Um, and so I think it's really important to keep that in mind the entire time. I also think we need to, to address this whole notion of victimhood because there are some schools of thought that I think blame the victim in a really unhealthy way. And I think it's important to realize that in this society, this industrialized, capitalistic, materially oriented, rational, earth-destroying society we live in, that there are a lot of victims. The trees are victims, the birds are victims, the plants are victims, human beings are victims, people of color are victims, um, people who are, who are non-binary are victims. We have, we have incredible victimization that's happening. At the same time, how do we deal with that social victimization without becoming victim to our own thoughts? I think that's the paradox. And that's the thing we need to find a way to manage so that we can be clear and proactive around the, the, the three pound universe that's our own brain and thinking without that bleeding into allowing these pathological systems and social structures to get over. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think you're just, you're pointing to all the things that make it very normal for us to run from information. You know, I mean, I think this is why it is so hard because the truth isn't settling usually. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're not feeling well and, you're, and your search for quote truth or like solutions comes to a resolution and you find the answer that helps you to feel better, like that is good news. But the underlying news of all of that is that these bodies are designed to break and that like this, any solution I find is temporary. And so it might be easier to just walk away from that information. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when, but then when you add to the social determinants of health, I mean, for example, I'm, I'll be 63 in a month and I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that some degree of my respiratory vulnerability was a direct result of growing up in a house of secondhand, of, and breathing secondhand smoke all the time, right? I also know that some of my respiratory vulnerability was happening because the doctor told my mother that she needed to smoke in order to reduce her stress. I also know some of my, my physical vulnerability is related to the fact that my mother, it took her 10 years to finally have a child 
because the doctor that she went to originally discouraged black women for having children. You know, so, and then I look at other factors, that, cultural factors that impacted my long-term well-being, you know, and stress as a result of racist kind of experiences and dealing with people where you have to wear a mask and pretend and all that, and all how, what that does to your cortisol level, right? So I'm fully aware that the body I live in right now in 2022, 2023 is a direct consequence of all of those social, cultural, family factors. And my job is I can't blame them now because that, bum that bumps my blood pressure and cortisol up even more, right? So how do I hold that and still keep my eyes on the prize and focus? None of this is easy, especially when we live in a society and medical system that says, I'm the expert, you don't know what you're doing, just do what I say and shut up. If we're discovering now, I mean, two years after the, the COVID vaccine thing, and I hope this doesn't like mean, make, make me so controversial that you can't run, run the podcast, but you know, the myocarditis studies for young men are leading to the mRNA vaccine being banned in certain European countries. Right. And the people who saw that two years ago were considered anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, theorists, radicals or whatever. Right. So how do you develop the stamina to do your own thinking without falling into foolishness? Right. When you don't know that you can trust the authorities and the sources of information. I mean, I'm just raising more questions than answers, but these are some of the things that that's that's our that's our trademark. So carry on, sir. Um, yeah, I mean, because I think there are more questions than answers, you know, and if you're oh, if you're yes. willing, every time you ask a question, there's more questions that, you know, spring from that question. I think this is also why spiritual practice of whatever kind is really important. You talk about being a quasi Buddhist, like you got to have some practice for embodying, grounding, clearing, centering, releasing. If you don't have something you do to clean out all that stuff then you're just gonna get swept by the wave of misinformation and the wave of emotion and the wave of all those things that are constantly flowing through us and at us. One of the tenets um, of the Framework for Information Literacy and Higher Education, which is the document we're working from for this conference, um, one of the first tenets is authority is constructed and contextual. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I know, right? It's, it's such a great sentence. Um, yeah, I, I wish they taught that to every fourth grader. In all, in all, I, I know it's for higher education, but like we probably need to bring it down to all the levels. Yeah. Wow. Um, so wow. as as a question, which it wasn't, but it is now, um, who, what authorities do you trust since like you may not trust the doctor who's in front of you, who's got 10 minutes for you perhaps, and has things to do and they're not you and that's fine, but you do trust other medical information, like who, who's, what, what authorities do you choose and why? I trust PubMed. Okay, you just researchers. <laughs> I trust PubMed for sure. Um, that's a really great question. I mean, when the Google flu is with me, right? Sure, yeah. I'm looking for primary sources whenever possible, you know? Um, in my research, for example, around sleep and sleep apnea and everything, I found some great research around um, acupuncture, successful acupuncture for sleep apnea. And I also found, what was it I was looking at? I was looking something recently. And I found um, 
gosh, I don't remember the condition. I don't remember what the thing was, but I found some really good research from China about traditional Chinese medicine herbal concoctions for something that's going on in my body. I forget what it was, but mm -hmm. you know, but that that took four or five layers of digging to get to the primary source. So I would say I, I trust primary sources, I trust PubMed, I trust medical professionals who I have a relationship with, who have a reputation of being curious. You know, um, I trust like this author, um, this Barry Krakow, Krakow, I believe is his name. Uh, he wrote a book called Sound Sleep, Sound Mind, Sound Sleep or something. He's a sleep expert and he's dealt with his own sleep apnea for years. And he wrote a great book on the psychological and physiological roots of it. And um, I reached out and got a telehealth consultation with him after watching a bunch of YouTube videos and reading articles he'd written. So does that help? Well, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting when we talk about like, like information that we trust, because I think about like, I, I trust PubMed to not be lying to me. Right. Um, and like, because we've been talking so much at Healwell about what doesn't get published and what like, you know, like, so to trust it means, okay, you're not going to lie to me, but what aren't you telling me? And mm -hmm. what, what will I have a hard time finding if I really want to know about it? And that we sort of tend to trust what is available and we have to get better at wondering what didn't show up here and how would I ask that question to find out what didn't get published, what questions didn't get asked. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, and I don't have an answer to that either, but I think that's the thing that we're really starting to wonder is like, okay, so PubMed is great. There's published stuff there and there are some definite problems with mainstream quote unquote research and how it gets published and why it gets published. And, you know, where do we put that in our big mix? There's, there's problems with the idea that the observer has no impact on the result of the experiment. You know, when you when you look at the research on whether it's prayer or intercessory prayer or energy healing or all those kinds of things, there's you have these anecdotal studies and these experiences, sometimes thousands of them, that don't make it to the quote unquote research database because they can't be measured based on our current standards. You know, and that's very interesting. And then you have the people who are doing that research completely um disallowed or or, or, or disrespected or dis dismissed so i mean I've, I've had things happen in my own practice with clients and i i i, I do workshops on working with um subtle, subtle energies energies of, of love and, and intuition and so forth and i've had the most remarkable transformations happen that there won't be research money to fund it. There won't be the interest to work with it. So for example, you have somebody who's had some terrible trauma, you know, and they, when they think about that thing that happened to them, their blood pressure goes up and their, you know, their skin conduction changes, all, all the physiological impacts of major activation, right? And then you do this thing, you might do one of the processes, or I, I do a process where we have a guided meditation where we connect with the energies of love and, and spirituality, whatever. And that thing gets clean, that thing is completely healed. If you were to do a brain scan afterwards, the brain would show a radically different profile around that issue. Now there's been a little bit of that research with some modes like, like EFT or EMDR and so forth, but that research costs a lot of money. 
and it takes a lot of energy to, to get that research started. So how many modalities right now are helping people heal that are completely dismissed by the mainstream because they are not happening either in a way that is easily understood or easily funded? How many, how many herbal and other medicinal remedies that may have been in use for thousands of years never get researched properly and never reach the mainstream because a pharmaceutical can't make any money by patenting it, you know? I, th I think probably 90% of the information we could possibly benefit from never reaches us. Yeah. It, 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 it's, 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 it's filtered through that filter of rationality and-, and Capitalism. Oh, gosh, yeah. 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 I just, um, I have a, a dear friend who just died a few days ago, uh, Stephen Harrod Buner, who was probably the foremost, one of the foremost herbalists in the world. And he, re he wrote like 20 or 30 books on herbalism and so forth. And he has a, his, his latest book but that he finished before he died was called Earth Grief. And he basically talks about how in this time of ecological Armageddon, he talked about friends of his or colleagues who work in the environmental or the medical arena who are forbidden to talk about the feelings of love and caring that animate their research and their work, because that makes them seem too woo-woo, too emotional, too non-rational, and how toxic that is as it spreads through an entire culture. There's a whole, like, it's not even a controversy, um, but it should be about research and going into research and researching the thing that you want to research because you have prior thoughts about it, which is why you want to research it, right? Oh, and that That's and so that funny. that causes problems in your research and bias in what you're doing, which is technically true. But like, if you just, you know, that, that write all your cool. biases down and then publish those, like then we all know and everybody knows and you can take it into account. But there's like this stigma about like I'm in research because my friend died of cancer and it's this crazy cancer and I want to know more about it and I want to know what happened and we don't have enough information and people are like well but maybe you shouldn't do that because that, you're really that, invested that is that is pathological it's incredibly backwards and horrible it, it, it's it's pathological to attempt to disconnect the love and caring and passion one has from a subject from the active engagement of learning about and researching that subject. I, I, think, I think that's one of the, that's one of the central pathologies of our time and of the culture that we live in. And this mechanistic, you know, the theologian Martin Buber said that, talked about two ways of seeing the world. I, it, where everything's an object, or I, thou, where everything is reverent and a subject and we are all part of the one. And this I, it culture that we're living in has led to environment, environmental Armageddon, may lead to humanity's extinction and is the primary insanity underlying all of our all, all of our cultural insanities from my perspective. We could do another another podcast on that one, but I'll go on, I'll go off on that. <laughs> you know? And unless unless it's if like the, the indigenous cultures talk about needing to change the dream, change how we see our relationship with one another and with earth. Because unless we 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 are living in the consequences of a broken dream right now. This idea that you and I are ultimately separate and that I can somehow, I can somehow be completely objective about what I see and what I know. 
None of that's true. Nobody who's on this call or listening to this call even knows what they are. I know there's something looking through these eyes, making sounds, communicating with you. You know you are something looking through those eyes, but we have no idea what that is. We have no idea what the animating intelligence is that actually that animates this, our physical bodies. So how can we say we're objective about anything? Really? Anyhow, that's my rant. <laughs> Amen. You know. Preach. So I don't know what that has to do with your information. Well, I think, it, I mean, exactly. I mean, if this is the paradigm, if this is the paradigm we're coming from, then this is how we will treat information we receive. And this is what we're doing with the information we receive. So I think it, I mean, there's a straight line. <laughs> that, and this is how we'll treat people as well. We'll treat yes. objects. Yep. We'll people that's obvious to be manipulated as opposed to, to beings to be celebrated, you know? Yep. Well, as usual, we could probably talk with you for days longer. Um, anytime. But our, anytime, excellent. Well, we'll we'll put you on the regulars list. Um, Corey, any burning question that you want to close with? Or uh, nope, that was great. It's great. Thank you so much for being with us, Harry, on the planet Earth and on our show. Thank you so much, and may you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday, and may you continue to kick butt. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we'll do our best. All right. Take care. Much love. Thanks. You too. Bye. Interdisciplinary is produced by Heelwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can... Send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.